and welcome to the Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor Marion Turner of Oxford University, who is an expert on Chaucer and whose new book is called Chaucer, A European Life. Marion, welcome. We think of Chaucer as, you know, the founding father of English poetry. So when you call your book A European Life, is that a kind of intended as a corrective? Yes, it is in many ways. So I think that we have lots of ideas about Chaucer in the popular imagination, and most of them came about posthumously. So in the 15th century after Chaucer's death, people started thinking of him as the father of English literature, as kind of sober, patriarchal figure. There's a little picture of him from a manuscript at that time where he's an old man holding a rosary, looking very serious. And then in the 20th century, people started thinking about him as bawdy Chaucer, genial man in the pub telling rude stories, because those were the Canterbury tales that were most popular in the 20th century. But both of those images of Chaucer are not correct and are not based on thinking about him as a whole person, about his whole life, about his his writings. Chaucer was very much a European figure, and I mean that in a number of different ways. So he travelled a lot around Europe. People are often very surprised to hear that he went repeatedly to Italy, he went to northern Spain, many times to France. He was also reading a huge range of European literature. His main influences were French, Latin, and then, most crucially, Italian. And the writings of Dante and Boccaccio, in particular, were formative on Chaucer and really changed what English poetry could do. But even without that travelling, within London and the court, he lived a very international kind of life. So all educated people at this time in England were multilingual, speaking usually French and Latin as well as English, though he also spoke Italian. And London was an extraordinarily international, global, as well as European place. I think it's it's really instructive and interesting to remember that Chaucer worked for many years in the Customs House, which looked out upon the Thames. Chaucer was a poet of thresholds. He could look back into the city or he could look out to the river where the ships were coming in. And the ships in the late 14th century were bringing products from as far afield as Indonesia. They were bringing all kinds of spices and fabrics and all kinds of things from all over the world. So you describe at one point how how somebody's spice drawer would actually kind of effectively you know, had more spices in it than we'd probably recognise now, almost, you know. Absolutely. You could buy spices here in London in the 14th century that now you can only buy in the Indonesian islands in which they are grown. So there was an incredible appetite for exotic spices. Of course, not amongst the the peasantry, who did not have access to that, but amongst the, the wealthier, what we might think of as middle class, upper middle class and, and noble people. Yeah, well, let's, let, I mean, class is maybe a good jumping in point from, for looking at Chaucer's life. He was born into a relative, relatively well-to-do, yeah. wasn't he? What, yeah. Can you describe yes. his progress a little bit? Yes, absolutely. So Chaucer's father was a vintner, a wine merchant, very well off, had various royal royal appointments. Chaucer lived 
a luxurious life by medieval standards. So he was born in London. He lived there for his young life. He would have had luxury products and you know good quality food, all those kinds of things. He then got an appointment into a noble household. So his first job was as page to the daughter-in-law of the king, um, Elizabeth de Burr. This is where we first meet him wearing what sounds a bit like a miniskirt. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So I think that the key, the key aspect there is more the tightness of the trousers than the, than the miniskirt. But I mean, that's a, that's a really kind of fun anecdote from the book, I know. So this is the first life record of Chaucer. And again, in thinking about preconceptions about Chaucer, our first life record, you know, he's not the father of English literature. He's not a middle-aged man. He's not even a customs officer or anything like that. He's a teenage fashion plate. And no one expects that about Chaucer. But this this document tells us that his female employer bought him some clothes, so a poltock and some hose, leggings and shoes. And when I investigated these items of clothing, I found out that they were high fashion at the time and that they were causing all kinds of scandal. So contemporary commentators were writing about them. And one chronicler even says that these fashion items were to blame for causing the plague to come back to England because they were so outrageous. And basically the problem with them was that the young men were wearing these short tunics and then these very tight leggings that were laced up so as to emphasize the genitals inappropriately and I mean it's obviously a funny anecdote and it it surprises people's expectations but it's also it's also interesting to me because I think in some ways it sums up one of the things that I find and many of my students over the years have found most wonderful and marvellous, I mean, think about those words wonder and marvel about the medieval period, that in some ways it's so familiar and in other ways it's so other. So, so when you think about that anecdote, you think, okay, so teenagers were wearing inappropriate clothing that the older generation didn't like and they were parading around in fashionable clothes and everyone was going, oh God, you know, young people today, plus ça change. <laughs> But on the other hand, when you think about this, you think, okay, so Chaucer, as a teenager, he's living in a great household where he can't choose what he wears, he can't choose what he eats or where he sleeps. He's not being paid in money, he's being paid in in kind, so he's being paid in clothes and food. And he's being treated essentially as an object. So if you're working in a great household, even if you're someone such as a page who is who's an ornamental figure, you know, he's not kind of doing any real servant type work, although he is technically a servant. But you don't have your own private identity in many ways. You're there to serve the identity of the great lady or the great lord. You don't have a private room. You don't. You certainly don't have a room of your own to do your thinking in. So it's a very alien way of life. And I think for me, when you're when you're thinking about the medieval period, that oscillation between the familiar and, oh, so many things stay the same, and the difference, I have to make an imaginative leap. I can't just stay in my comfort zone. That's a really interesting and appealing aspect about, about thinking about the past, I think. That idea of you know, private rooms mm. and interiority and you know, the idea you have a private space is one that, in a way, sort of structures your book a bit because you've made a conscious decision, haven't you, to navigate... Chaucer's life through a consideration of the spaces he lived in yeah rather than what he thought and yes you know more directly what he did or what he wrote can you say why you did that yes so when I first started thinking about writing this biography I think I assumed that I would do it in a straightforward chronological 
way. And as I was kind of sketching out my plan for it, I, I found that I was not inspired by that. And I really couldn't work out how that was going to allow me to get inside the mindset of the time or to do something that I would feel was was different and new. And I actually remember it very well. I went for a long walk around Christchurch Meadow in Oxford. You know, I, I live in Oxford and just thought and thought while walking actually through these interesting and beautiful spaces. And then I just came up with this real, for me, light bulb moment that place and space biography actually is a very flexible genre I don't have to do the early years and go through to the late years I can structure it however I think is productive so I decided that I would make each chapter a place or a space and some of these are real places such as Genoa and Florence or Navarre Vintry Ward in London some of them are more imaginative structures so such as the great household or the inn so spaces that don't really exist in the same way today and others are more conceptual such as thresholds and peripheries and for me the focus on place and space allowed me to get inside the imagination I think of Chaucer and and in and the imagination of the time in some ways. I felt quite early on that I didn't want to write a very speculative book that was going to be trying to probe the emotional life. Because I think when you're writing about a figure from the 14th century for whom you do not have diaries and memoirs, you can't interview their grandchildren or anything like that. The Chaucer life records don't have... It's all about his public life, isn't it? There's nothing nothing in there at all about even that he was a poet. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So we have an extraordinary number of life records for Chaucer, a hugely thick volume. We know much more about him than we know about, say, Shakespeare. So we're very lucky in that way. But we don't have documents which tell us what he was thinking. So for me, I thought, well, the imagination is how I want to get inside his head. I want to think about what was he seeing? Where was he going? How was he living? What were these rooms like? And how does it change your sense of what it means to be a person if you live in a different kind of structure or a different kind of environment? And I found that very, very productive for me to to think in that conceptual way. And I did keep the book roughly chronological, but there were times when I wanted to focus on a place and extend a bit further rather than having to keep going rigidly back to oh and this was also happening in that in that year so for me it was kind of flexible way of of cutting across his life but the point that you just made about him as a poet it is really important and interesting I think to remember that as far as we know Chaucer was never paid a penny for his writing so Chaucer wrote all these extraordinary texts but he was always holding down a day job or several different kinds of day jobs. So he's one of these infuriating people that is working all day, you know, mainly as a customs officer, kind of an accountant type figure, and then going home and writing the Canterbury Tales and Troilus and Crusader <laughs> you know, by candlelight in his rooms above Oldgate. Yeah. Now, I, you say with you know, proper scholarly fastidiousness, you know, we know nothing of his inner life, we mm. know nothing of his emotional life, but as a person and as a writer... You've inhabited Chaucer's world so thoroughly. You've immersed yourself in his work so thoroughly. You must have come away with a feeling about what he was like, a sense, in a way, of what, you know, just yeah. a guess at, yeah. at what his character was. Can you give, give a little bit of a sense of, of how you see him you yeah. know, as a person and as a personality? Yeah, so when you ask that question, I think the thing that, for me, first springs into my mind is his interest in 
thinking about multiple perspectives and lots of different ways of seeing the world. And he certainly had an extraordinarily tolerant attitude to thinking about many different points of view. So what we see over and over again in his poetry is a suspicion of the idea of an authoritative voice, a suspicion of the idea of a kind of hegemonic dominant voice that doesn't allow room for other perspectives and a focus all the time on listening to multiple voices, allowing lots of different stories and versions of events to be heard. And, you know, I think he's also interested in the development of perspective that's been happening with the work of Giotto, for instance, and the work of contemporary scientists. Yes, what you described when he goes to Italy, saying Mm. that this happens just at the same time that Giotto's... Yeah, or just afterwards, yeah. Zooming around with the perspective. Yeah. Would he have seen Giotto's work? I think he would. I mean, so we don't have, you know, an account of him saying, and then I went to see Giotto's work, but I'm... I feel very sure that he did. So in particular, when he went to Florence... What he seems to have been doing there is negotiating with the Bardi, who were a banking family who made lots of loans to Edward III, for whom Chaucer was working at that time. Now, the Bardi sponsored lots and lots of chapels, and in particular, the Bardi Chapel in Santa Croce in in Florence was frescoed by Giotto a, a generation earlier. And anyone, any medieval Christian traveling at this time would have gone to church on their travels of course and Chaucer was also reading lots of poetry which talks about Giotto's art so people such as Dante and and Boccaccio talk about this these contemporary art developments so I think he he would have seen that kind of thing yeah. And with this shift this idea of I suppose we probably wouldn't yet call it polyphony but of multiple perspectives Mm. within a work of art is that an innovation I mean is that one of the things that Chaucer brings I mean I a sort of dual yeah. question I'm interested in here is the question of how original was Chaucer yeah. and also what what would the meaning or importance of originality yeah. in his age have been because it yeah. probably isn't the same sure. as we think of it now. So I think that's two really important questions. So I think to answer the first one, a really good way of thinking about this is comparing the Decameron with the Canterbury Tales. So Boccaccio, who was the person that influenced Chaucer more than any other poet... Well, you do have a footnote saying... Most people agree that he'd be familiar with the Decameron, yeah, but yeah. that that isn't a completely... Well, There's so no absolute proof that he read the Decameron. Again, I mean, the, there is not an absolute tales. proof, but it would be utterly... Extru- I mean, I can't imagine that he didn't because he read so much Boccaccio. So, so I think the difference is that when you look at something like the Philostrato by Boccaccio, Chaucer directly translates big chunks of it. The same with the Tessada by Boccaccio. He doesn't do that with the Decameron. But he is absolutely imbued with Boccaccio. I mean, he, he has so many Boccaccio manuscripts. He's very, very aware of Boccaccio's writing. So I, I am certain that he did know the Decameron. But I think not with the same detail that he knew the Philostrato, for instance. You know, I think he, he probably read bits of it. He might have read abridged bits of it. He, you know, he, he, but he, I'm sure he knew it. But also, the point that I was going to make was that the Decameron and also Gower's Confessio Amantis, these are... Uh, these are, which Chaucer certainly knew, these are examples of tale collections. So Chaucer is not the only person to write a collection where, where, where you have different voices telling tales. But the crucial thing that's different is the nature of those voices. So if you look at the Decameron, these 10 tale tellers are all from the same kind of background. So they're all of a similar age, they're all attractive, they're all youngish, they're all related to each other or friends, and crucially, they're all gently born. They're all from a kind of aristocratic background. So although these are 10 different voices 
the voices are not so clearly differentiated. When Chaucer puts his Canterbury group together, he puts together this absolute mishmash of voices. So he has people such as the merchant, the man of law, the shipman, the cook, the miller, all kinds of different people. And at the beginning of the Canterbury Tales, the idea is, the host's idea is, that it's going to be in in hierarchical order. So the knight tells the first tale. There's a kind of um, pretend drawing of lots, which the knight, the highest person of highest wins. wins, exactly. And then the host wants the monk, the person of highest ecclesiastical rank, to tell the next story. But the miller who is drunk, interrupts and says, no, I'm going to tell the next tale. I can quite, I can um, reply to the knight. And people go, all right then. And he tells this tale and it's a brilliant tale and it parodies the knight's tale and it's hilarious. And after that, there's, there's not another attempt to put the hierarchy back in place. So in the Canterbury Tales, Chaucer is really interested in this idea that we should let lots of different kinds of people speak. And that if you get two different kinds of people who are trying to tell the same kind of story, they will have very, very different views on it. So with the knight and the miller, they're both telling stories about a love triangle in in essence, but in different genres with very, very different takes on what that means. I think over and over again, Chaucer suggests to us that you must listen to lots of voices and then you choose. You don't have to like them all. You don't have to agree with any of them. But if you only listen to one voice, then you really aren't making an educated decision. So let lots of people speak and crucially let people speak who don't usually have the the right to speak you know no one before in literature has said let's listen to all these stories by these much more ordinary kinds of people but the second part of your question was about originality and i think that's also a really important issue because today we we prize originality and i think for the last couple of hundred years there's such a focus on the idea of what it means to be original and people in the medieval era certainly did not think like that they didn't think I must come up with my own original story I mean no one would ever think that that was something they were supposed to do so people would retell the same stories and the originality the innovation tends to lie in the treatment of that story rather than in you know, coming up with an idea out of nowhere everyone was absolutely aware that that what they wrote would inevitably be rooted in what other people had written. But Chaucer, of course, is a great innovator. He's a great formal poetic innovator. I say he invented the iambic pentameter, which yeah. is bad for an afternoon's work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in his spare time as well. <laughs> um, yeah, so he's the first person to write in this ten-syllable, five-stress line. Often it varies how much he's, how strictly he's using it. But he he invents it, and that, of course, becomes the building block of English poetry. But he also... He takes stories and he does something different with them. So he takes Boccaccio's Philostrato and turns it into Troilus and Crusader, which is a completely different kind of poem, treats the characters quite differently, treats the plot quite differently. So the fact that it's rooted in something else, you know, doesn't doesn't make it unimportant or, or derivative in the way that we might use that term in a slightly pejorative kind he of way. He quite likes to say, you know, my author is, you know, yeah, talk, talk about who he's, yeah. Though he often lies about his copy. it. Yes. Exactly, he <laughs> yeah. pretends yeah. he's taken it from someone yeah. else when yeah. he hasn't. Yeah. That, that, that prosody I just wanted to go, go back to, because you say, to start with, his first influences were French poetry, which would be in syllabics, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. And does he sort of, does he find his way to writing in this kind of stress-based, you know, English line? Or is there a sort of jump where he goes, I'm doing rhyme syllabics and now I'm going to do this, this, you know, English prosody? So... 
So in his early poetry, he's, he's writing in the octosyllabic, in oct- so an eight-syllable line with, with four stresses in it. Because, because English is an accentual syllabic language, he's writing with those, with those stresses in English. And he's writing initially, so in his, the earliest long poem that we have from him, the Book of the Duchess, this is very, a, a very French form that he's writing in. So this kind of, it's called the, the dit amoureuse, the... the the, the, the story of love, the love narrative, but it's a particular kind of narrative in which you usually have a, a kind of client poet figure who overhears the love lament of a lord and then kind of tries to sympathise with him and, and help him. And the audience that Chaucer's writing for at this point is a much more courtly audience than, than he writes for later on. And this audience would only really have been used to hearing syllabic French verse and so to hear so although other people have been writing English poetry they hadn't written this kind of English poetry this kind of ditamoureuse in in English so that would have been a very different oral experience for the this audience who are used to to hearing or reading Machaut for instance the French poet but then it's it's later that he develops the ten syllable line. So after he's encountered the Italian eleven syllable line, which is called the endecasyllabo, and Italian does have stresses in that line, though not with the same kind of regularity as as English. But he encounters that line, and then after that, develops this ten syllable line. Does he ever try terza rima? Um, he read Dante. Didn't he, he did. Yeah. So he read Dante. He so he doesn't try it in the same way, but he does experiment with similar things. Yeah. Yeah, and, he, and Dante is a, is a very, very important influence on him as well. And what is the significance of his writing in English? Was that a big break? You know, why, why if you're you know, courtly, you're looking for, for favour at court, you're, you know, why would you suddenly jump into yeah. what I guess yeah. would be considered the vulgar tongue? I think there are a lot of reasons. So, first of all, Chaucer isn't the only person who's writing in English at this time. So there is a kind of groundswell in the later 14th century where you have the Gawain poet who writes Gawain and the Green Knight and Pearl and two other poems at least. You have Langland, you have Gower who writes three great poems, one in French, one in Latin and one in English. So there is more writing in English. There's also more use of English in, for instance, law courts. So there's so the vernacular is rising and it's not only rising here, it's also rising across Europe. So when Chaucer chooses to write in English, he's not being a kind of nationalist little Englander. He's also taking part in an international trend. So he sees these Tuscan poets choosing to write in their local dialect. And he tries to do the same thing with English. And I mean, you talked about the, the audience. And while the more courtly end of his audience would be mainly used to French poetry. He is writing for a broader audience as well. And if you write in English, you're going to reach more people. And that was certainly something that the Italian poets had, had written directly about. And he was also writing for, for a mercantile audience, for a city audience, you know, for women as well as for men. Now, most of those people could certainly also have understood French, but you, but you do certainly open up to more people if you write in English. And I think that Chaucer was an experimental poet. You know, he wanted to do new things. He wanted to try out novelries. And he's the, you know, he's the first person in English, um, as far as we know, to use the word newfangled. You know, he was so newfangled, he invented the word newfangled. newfangled. <laughs> so he, you know, he, he liked to do new things and to experiment. So I think he did try to, to expand the possibilities of what poetry could do. And then he could formally innovate in English and could be at the forefront of all kinds of things. I mean, one of my, one of my favourite examples, which I think 
relates to lots of the things we've been talking about, comes from the House of Fame. So the House of Fame is a poem about a poet with writer's block. And this poet happens to be called Geoffrey to work as a kind of accountant doing reckonings, accounts, and then goes home and writes poems. So it's an avatar of Chaucer, though not exactly Chaucer himself. He's a kind of slightly comic figure. But what happens in the House of Fame is that he says that reading the great canonical works is not enough for him, that he's already, he knows Virgil, he knows Ovid, and this isn't giving him inspiration or not anymore. And his guide figure, who's a Dantean eagle figure, but a kind of parodic version, his guide figure says, well, your problem is you go home and you just sit in your room, dumb as any stone, reading another book. But your neighbours, your very neighbours who are at your door, you don't go and listen to them. You don't listen to their stories. You don't go to the threshold and the doorway. And so there's this sense that what Chaucer thinks you need to produce literature and for inspiration is not only that bedrock of having read a lot of things, but also to be alive to your contemporary moment. And I think that's so important for Chaucer. And so that is social change as well, because the contemporary moment is described as a kind of hinge, which you say is not, not as clear-cut as a break between a kind of more feudal, fixed order of things and this mercantile society, yeah. which is much more international, which is much more you know, fluid and yeah. based on money. I mean, you know, yeah. gold yeah. is something that starts to be yeah. minted in, in yeah. the UK. Yeah, exactly. And how does that enter into the, the poetry? Yeah, in so many ways. So so first of all, that that change that it's a it's a it's a long term change, of course, but also in the fourteenth century, the plague hits in the middle of the fourteenth century when Chaucer is about six years old. And that is a catalyst for the, the pace of change to increase because now there are fewer people to do the work so they can be paid more. And the government tried to pass lots of legislation to set the wages at pre-plague levels and to stop social climbers wearing wearing clothes that were too elaborate for their alleged status. And none of this legislation worked. You know, there was social change. There was more social mobility through the 14th century. So... So there's a kind of acceleration of this change in many ways. But Chaucer was from a background that was already in that mercantile buying and selling world. I think a good example of the way that we see the contrast between these two ways of thinking is the very opening of the Canterbury Tales. So the Canterbury Tales begins very famously with Juan the Taprilla, with his Shura's suitor, the Droct of March hath pierced to the rooter, and bathed every vein in switch liqueur of such virtue engendered is the fleur. And I could go on, but I, but I won't. But it begins with timeless images. It begins with these timeless images of fertility. So it opens with the April showers piercing the drought of March and flowers being born from that, the wind zephyrus, you know, again, piercing the hedges and the fields and the crops being born out of that. It talks about the seasons, the planets, the sun, things which are eternal. You know, every year, spring will succeed winter and the same kinds of things will happen. And this reflects a a kind of feudal ideology where you will be in the same position as your father and you will work for the person that your father worked for, right? So that's kind of idea of of everything goes on in the same way. And then after that extraordinary magisterial first sentence, which goes on for many, many lines, um, ending at the tomb of of Thomas Beckett and 
people wanting to go on pilgrimages, again in this eternal way, people seek healing, we then suddenly get Biffel, that in that season, on a day, in Southwark, at the Tabard, as he lay. And it's a completely different tone. It's this sense of, but, although that stuff always happens, in fact, sometimes things just happen. It befell. It happened. It might not have happened. And what happened? I happened to be in a pub just outside London in a slightly dodgy area. And these people happened to come in by adventure, by chance, if fall, in fellowship. They happened to have come together. And we're now in this world where things happen or they don't happen. There's chance. There's all those kinds of things in human affairs. And it's a place of buying and selling. They're in an inn. They're in a place where you exchange money for things. Well, that's, I mean, actually, it's exactly what I was going to ask you next, which is how much of a, because we know he's steeped in Boethius and the idea that fortune's wheel turns mm. in a very inexorable mm. way. Mm. At the same time, there's, you know, so much human agency. in his. How much of a determinist was he? How much mm. did he have a kind of view of, you know, history as being providential or fated mm. or or in classical terms determined by fate yeah so there's a really important phrase in Chaucer's work mark and virtue of necessity which he repeats more than once so make a strength out of necessity and I think it's such a a wonderful phrase because you have that virtue strength in the middle how do you how do you find that strength? Well, it's a balance between mark and make something. What can you do? And necessity, the things that you can't control, the things that that happen. And so I think what what Chaucer suggests is that there are lots of things that are out of your control that you cannot change. There are all kinds of appalling things that happen. You know, someone who lives through many waves of the plague knows this, you know, very very viscerally. But at the same time, he very often shows us characters who just give in to fate and, and someone like Troilus who says, I, I can't do anything, you know, I am just on the wheel and it's all terrible and I'm just going to lament all the time. And he is someone who's always lamenting and bewailing and doesn't think he can do anything. And, you know, Crusade thinks, well, OK, what can I do in these awful situations that I keep being put into by others? What can I do to survive? What can I do? And I think, you know, Chaucer suggests that there are things we can do. We can have some agency, though, of course, we can't control everything. So there's a seed of a modern worldview a bit there. Does that also feed into genre? I mean, one of the things that seems to be striking about Chaucer, and maybe this is the 20th century falsification, is that so much of his worldview in the literature is, is comic in the sense of having that kind of doubleness of perspective. You know, so Fina Moore, you know, as a courtly love, he doesn't, he undermines it. He doesn't take it seriously. Yeah. He does that thing. He compares love to being like a pike in a galantine yeah, sauce. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. um, he's... Yeah. There is a, and he, his comic self-portraits, yeah. you know, where he appears, he's always undermining himself and teasing himself, yeah. and which I guess has to do with multiplicity of perspective. Is that a great jump? Is that a break? And is that something that comes in the Canterbury Tales particularly? So there are other authors who project themselves in a in a self-mocking way and someone like Masho does does to some extent do that I think Chaucer does it in quite an extreme way but I think so in terms of the the self-projection of a kind of bumbling figure what we also see in the French tradition is sometimes that juxtaposition of different kinds of language where you have taking love seriously and then undermining it the more demotic voice that is is seemingly very puzzled by these ideas of love I think it's something that Chaucer rather than it being wholly new to Chaucer it's something that he hugely develops and I think he develops it 
I mean, of course, we do see it in the Canterbury Tales, but we see it very strikingly in many of his other texts as well. So the Parliament of Fowls, for instance, is, you know, I mean, a very, very interesting parliamentary poem, you know, by someone who did indeed sit as an MP, um, though he probably did that after writing the poem. Not, not hugely successfully, I think. No, no. Um, but Parliament was a very troubled place at this time, and at all times we yes. see it. But, um, but, but in the Parliament of Fowls, we have these high-class birds who talk about love all the time and these three different birds all love the same one and no they, you know how can you decide who loves her best she doesn't want any of them they talk and talk and talk and then the the lower class birds interrupt and say well people who have leisure can do that could just sit around talking about love we don't have leisure we need to get on with it you know that we're lower class we need to get back to work you know even though they're birds um and they and they then speak very directly um I mean, without any kind of idealism, and they all choose their partners ultimately, and you know, say say things like, you know, if she doesn't love you, love someone else. Who cares? Plenty more, you know, birds in the sky, and they get on with it. And and again, I think Chaucer presents those two views, and they're both undermined. You know, he he doesn't say that it's he certainly doesn't suggest that it's a good thing to be um to be saying, oh, I love her so much completely pointlessly all the time when she doesn't love you back and you're not trying to progress and get anywhere but he also doesn't say that it's a good thing to have no understanding of of deep feelings to say it's all just about pragmatism and finding anyone it doesn't really matter I mean that attitude is also put up very much for for criticism and we see that same kind of balance between Troilus and Pandarus for instance or in some ways between the knight and the miller and and I think the point is as ever with Chaucer that you juxtapose different voices and you decide for yourself if you if you're more in sympathy with one or the other or you reject you reject both and think of it of a different way I know, I mean, I think he was your thesis supervisor as a colleague of yours, Paul Strome, had the quite compelling idea that the Canterbury Tales themselves were written in a way because Chaucer, when he was, he lost his place in London, he was down on his luck, he was an exile to the country, and he was essentially lonely, and he wrote the Canterbury Tales almost to keep himself company, Mm. and that Mm. they they were sort of feeding into a new idea of authorship and the idea of textual transmission rather than oral Mm. storytelling Mm. to entertain Mm. me. Do you buy that? account of them do you think so I mean I think I mean Paul Strom's book The Poet's Tale is a wonderful book and you know tells the story of a particular year in Chaucer's life and I think it's been a brilliant work for, for Chaucer's studies and for for the broader public as well I think lots of people have got a great deal out of that book I have a slightly different take on various on various things and you know we've had a lot of of interesting conversations about it I think in terms particularly of the move to Kent I see it as a move which is less isolating than than Paul Strom sees it so I see his move to Kent as not removing him from those social circles. I think the part of Kent in which he was living, so he's living in that Greenwich, Woolwich area. He's actually still very connected, I think, in that northern Kent area. He's very close to Southwark. He's very close, in fact, to London. There's lots of boats you can get. He is, for much of that time, or for some of that time, working as clerk of the King's Works. So he's going down to Elton Palace, which is about four miles further down into Kent, or he's getting the boat up to the Tower of London, or further on to Windsor and Westminster in between. So I think that his role, in, his place in Kent is not so isolated. I think he is, he's still got quite similar audiences in various ways. So I think that, that the idea of writing the tales for this imaginary audience is a, a really interesting idea. I don't think we can ultimately prove that idea. And as I say, I have a slightly different take on what it was like for him in, in Kent. 
Mary Turner, thank you very much. Thank you. You were listening to the Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you.